Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we return again to this blessed epistle that we have here. Uh, For those of you who may not have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to page number 582 in our pew Bibles. Especially the children in the church, I encourage you to turn there and you can follow along as we read from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 1 and read down to verse 4 before our sermon text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We come back here to this passage of Scripture that I confessed to you last week. I really didn't know where I was going to land with it. didn't know how I was going to divide it up. Uh, But we made it through at least verses 1 last week. And we saw how that in verse 1 there was a very clear thrust in this passage that all of God's people are commanded to run a race. And we pulled out of verse number 1 last week not only the command to run, but also the encouragement to run. By looking back in chapter 11 and seeing all of this host, this category of Old Testament saints who have went before us in the same race, we use the word picture of the analogy that they're passing off as if it were a relay race, the baton, and we're grabbing it in our day and age, in our generation, and we're moving forward. We saw that there was a word of how to prepare to run this race. The race being not optional, the race being not if we feel like it, the race not being if uh, you know we're good at running or slow at running. No, we're all called to run the race. We saw there was a, a way to prepare for it, and it was to lay aside, verse number one, the encumbrances that easily trip us up. And then we saw in a separate category the preparation of putting aside besetting sins. This inspired writer He shows here wise pastoral affections for these early Christians, doesn't he? He's coming alongside them, brother, and he recognizes the pressures and the stresses and the opposition that they're facing. As we've been going through this epistle, we have noted that most likely the opposition was very close to home. These were converted Jews out of Judaism into Christianity. And being such, their family members, as we saw in John chapter 10 this morning, would have been very hostile to their newfound faith. 
in this man from Nazareth named Jesus. And any of us who have felt any kind of persecution or shall I say opposition uh, within our own family context, we know that's sometimes the most intimidating. That's the hardest to deal with. And so this wise man of God, he comes along these early Christians knowing the frustrations, knowing the stresses, knowing the pressures they're feeling. And what's he do? He leans in on them and he reminds them that this race is not for the wimpy. It is indeed for the weak. It is indeed for those who are afflicted, those who are downcasted, those who uh, need a savior. But when you sign up for it, it's not always easy going back to Zechariah chapter 4 this morning. It requires blood, sweat, and toil. For those who were with us last week, uh, we kind of introduced this passage of Scripture here, verses 1 through 4, in comparing our modern imagery and word pictures of what we think Christianity is to the Bible's word pictures. Um, and the Bible uses uh, you know, examples of the Christian life aligned with soldiers uh, and in this context aligned with athletes and that's far much different than sometimes what we think the Christian life is supposed to be it's not always pleasant it's it's not always comfortable and so this wise man who sees them getting perhaps a little weary seeing them perhaps becoming a little doubtful what you do he leans in And he says, you have to lay aside those things that are heavy around your neck. You're a runner. You're in a race. You're called to run this race. If you're not breaking a sweat, you're not in the race. Get off the the sin. It's going to trip you up in the race. That sin's going to prevent you from running to the full capacity and having the full resolve and the fortitude to make it unto the end. And so get rid of it. And then he comes after the clear exhortation in verse number one with an additional word of advice to these runners. He says, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. So we're still considering the run of the race ultimately in this passage. That's still the main thrust and the main theme. But today in passage two through four, there's a different emphasis And that is running the race with not only having preparedness, being informed of how to be prepared, not only uh, uh, being encouraged by chapter 11 in the Old Testament saints, but now we're to be motivated in considering the one who endured it all, the Lord Jesus. And so what we're going to do to today's message is we are going to continue the theme of running the race, but this time considering what Christ endured what Christ endured. So very simply, the sermon title is that. Christ, Jesus Christ, the author of our finisher of our faith, He endured. He endured. Let us begin, uh, as you see in your sermon notes, with just noticing this specific placement of Christ in the context of verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, we noticed last week, it says, wherefore, seen, or because of this. We saw that what he's doing is he's carrying over what he's attempting to do in chapter 11 into chapter 12. And so, in this context, we're finding an emphasis or a pointing back to this whole great host of witnesses. And now, we noticed last week, he's saying, 
You have uh, no excuse. Uh, There's not going to be any room for wiggle room. They could do it. Now by the same blessed Spirit, you can do it. Here, the baton's in your hand. Now run. Okay? So that's the context we're finding him drawing their attention where he gave that imperative command, run with endurance the race that's set before you. But, as you see in your notes, notice with him now drawing their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, the writer does not intend for them nor us to be content with looking to the Old Testament saints for their ultimate motivation and example of running the race that is set before us all. Now he's pointing them to Jesus Christ, the master runner. He is to be the focus and the object of us who are called to run. Jesus was the focus and the object of all of those in chapter 11 who ran. They didn't know his name was Jesus, but of course they were looking for that promised blessed Messiah and the eternal realities that he would grant unto them. You remember when we were dealing with the latter part of chapter 11, I attempted to convince you from the scriptures how it was that even the Old Testament saints that had passed on before were still anticipating, still looking to that promised Messiah so that when He would fulfill the covenant obligation upon the cross, they would receive eternal inheritance, eternal bliss. And while there is this mysterious place of the souls of men before the cross called Abraham's bosom, there was in this sense all of redemptive history looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, because that was the motivation to endure. That was the motivation to run. That was the motivation that would put winds in the sail. That was the motivation that would give them the resolve and the fortitude to keep moving forward. Because up until this point, basically he's wanting them now to look unto Jesus and he's wanting to say, if you think that it is hard now, You have no idea what lies ahead. And to help you, oh dear Christian, to be prepared for that, to understand what it may require of you. And beloved, the first century saints, our brothers and sisters who will be at the great feast of the Lamb, they will, they may share stories giving Christ the honor and the glory for helping them do the sacrificial things that they did fed to the lions, burned at the stake, stoned alive. We think of the blessed first martyr, Stephen. Oh, and they all will be pointing to Christ and say, He's the one who gave me the resolve. His example gave me the fortitude to go through whatever was cast upon me in God's providence to use me as a seed, to use my blood if it required it, to be the fertilizer for this glorious truth of the King, of the Lord Jesus Christ unto the end of the ages. And so he focuses now their attention on the object of the race, the only one who's going to help any of us get through whatever we may face in this life. And you see here in in verse number 2, he describes Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. Now this well-known description of Jesus is familiar to us as Christians. How many times have we been reminded of this blessed truth that Jesus is the author and the finisher 
of our faith. But friends, I wonder in this compact nutshells, if it were, of the entire doctrine of soteriology, as you see in your notes, when we say soteriology, we just mean the doctrine of salvation. We have here in a nutshell, as if it were, the entire doctrine, the most perhaps concise, condensed uh, uh, representation of the doctrine of salvation. That in Jesus, He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Have we become as the church of Christ perhaps a little too familiar with that for it to come down with all of its weight, all of its sober reality of what it deserves in our minds and in our hearts. Well, he definitely is using that to be part of why he wants them to look to Jesus and and be fortified and be resolved in moving forward. So let's consider that together, Jesus as the author of our faith. Now, in one sense, Jesus as the author of our faith, of course, is a no-brainer. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. You you remember when we went through this, when we very first began this series through Hebrews. Because Jesus, He is the author of all creation. In the person, the God-man Jesus Christ, all of creation, all of the cosmos, this means all the realms of creation, The unseen, the seen, find their subsistence, that which they need. Even the spiritual beings, they cannot be without the will or the word of His power. This comes through in chapter 1, verse 2. God the Father has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world's. So in one sense, of course, Jesus is the author of our faith. Of course, Jesus is the author of our salvation. He's the author of everything. The whole world, the whole cosmos, everything is upheld by Jesus Christ. But notice in our text, the direct subject that he's the author of is our faith. That is speaking of our salvation. This is what Jesus is the author of, friends. And this builds up to a climax later on of why he's pointing to him. You have it in your sermon notes. I just want to walk through a couple of passages in Scripture because the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. How is Jesus the author of our salvation? Well, friends, the Bible presents to us this beautiful thread all throughout the Scripture that He is not the author of our salvation as if He's an ambulance running to something that He didn't foresee. Oh, people sinned. Oh, they're going to need a a Savior. Oh, what will that require? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. What the Bible presents to us in this deep well of a mysterious love and affection that Jesus Christ has for those who He has given faith is that it happened before the foundations of the world. Those who have been called to run the race, those who are suffering through trials in running the race, Jesus has planned for you to have the baton in your hand from the very beginning. And this draws out for us encouragement, at least it ought to, that he will see it, that you make it to the end. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, that draws out this eternal authorship of Jesus Christ, of our faith. The inspired Apostle Paul here writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 
according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. There's the authorship of our faith. Predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. The authorship of Jesus Christ didn't begin at the cross. Oh, it was significant as we're going to see in a moment. But it began long before, friends. The authorship of our faith. I gave it to you in your sermon notes just to build upon this eternal authorship of Jesus of the author of our faith. Look at Matthew 25, 34 with me. In this parable, Jesus says, the king shall say unto them on his right hand, speaking and referring to himself, come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And young ones, what we're trying to see here is the, the, the Bible witnesses to us this reality that Jesus as the author of our salvation has done it from the foundations of the world. That ought to give you strength. That ought to give you encouragement. That ought to give you fortitude. That ought to give you resolve. That no matter what may come in your life, in this temporary sense, there's a bigger and broader picture to your faith, to the race, to where you're going, etc. and etc. That's what we're attempting to show you here. 1 Peter 1.20, again, lastly, drawing upon this eternal aspect who, referring to Jesus, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you. He's referring to the church. And so not only is He clearly the author of all things, clearly the author of our faith, but it's nothing to be the beginner of something if you don't finish it. And so we're seeing here two bookends, or as we were saying yesterday, like a race has a beginning at our conversion and an ending when we cross the finish line and receive that eternal inheritance, that blessed reality, that blessed hope of being with Jesus in the spiritual sense. Here we see in the work of Christ, it's supposed to encourage us also not only the decree, the choosing, the predestination of setting His love and granting faith to His church, we see that God be blessed. He came and He did it. He finished it. And this is what this epistle has been showing us in blooming color. Let's just walk through it real quickly. Hebrews 1.3. Turn back there. Hebrews 1.3. The author has been communicating this message of Jesus as the author and finisher all throughout his epistle. And now he's drawing upon this really pastoral sermon that he has given them to bring it home for them in their time and in their need of needing to be encouraged in a time of suffering. Look at verse 3. Jesus, who is the subject there being referenced, being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, equating Him to divinity there, and upholding all things by the word of His power, what does it say? When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Go to chapter 2, verse 10 denoting, citing there Psalms 2, Psalms 110, that when He had purged us from sin, 
When he had done that and accomplished that atoning work, it was finished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, fulfilling Psalms 2, fulfilling Psalms 110, Hebrews 2.10. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was made the captain no other way than by sufferings, which the author is going to be drawing upon immensely today. Think for a moment what he's doing here. He's wanting them to see that God Himself, as A.J. was referring to in John 10, came down in the flesh in and through whom all things depend. And He Himself incarnate endured death. And we're going to see in a moment what kind of death He did. Friends, think for a moment, He could have did it any other way. He could have dealt with the curse and the fall of man any other way. But He didn't. He came and He finished the work of our faith and salvation as the preeminent example of the Master running through suffering. Go to verses 14 through 18. The the writer points this out. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, He also, like Himself, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. That through death He might destroy Him that had the power of of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. He could have. No, 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 he didn't. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brother as a man, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of of his people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to comfort them that are tempted. Do you see how he's drawn upon this author and finisher phraseology in chapter 12 at a time when they need to be encouraged? And he's wanting to point them to what Jesus has done. But before we go there, let's just follow the text here. This author and this finisher. What it required him. Who he was. Could have done it any other way. Notice that he picked the way he did it because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. Now, the the faithful commentators, they, they kind of take two different approaches on them. And both of them are acceptable. In one sense, Jesus speaks of his children, his spiritual children, as the joy that motivated him to go onto the cross. We see this in John 17, verses 9 through 10 in his high priestly prayer. Father, those who were yours, you gave to me. And before I go to the cross, what was his concern, beloved, before he went to the cross? Father, abide with them. Father, be with them. 
I'm coming back unto my glory, but I'm leaving them here. And I know the suffering. I know the trials. I know the afflictions. I'm well aware as their master runner, as their Savior, what lies ahead for them, what I will require of them. And Father, be with them. It was the joy of His church why He went to the cross. And and that's a very acceptable interpretation of this joy that's being described here. But turn to Psalm 16. Turn to Psalm 16. John Gill points out, and not just him but others, that there's another aspect to this joy. And boy, does it excite the, uh, the mind of, of our risen Savior who is sitting at the right hand of God. It's particularly verses 8 through 11. Alright? And so, no one disagrees that this is referring to, uh, in a prophetical message to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And so we come to verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one. Most of your Bibles are going to have that capitalized. Well, that's obviously not referring to King David. That is referring to something much greater, David's greater son. Everyone's in agreement with this. That's referring to Jesus. Thou shalt suffer thine Holy One uh, not to see corruption. Neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. A lot of the old commentators are saying part of the joy that Jesus Christ saw that enabled Him, compelled Him to have the resolve. You could say, as we've been going through Hebrews, the covenant resolve, the covenant commitment that was made in eternity past. We just saw that in the New Testament from the various passages was this joy that as the Creator, as the Sustainer of everything that exists upon Him, that even though He will step through temporarily the veil of flesh in His humiliation, which we're going to look at in a moment, and even though He will be mocked by men who depend on Him for the very life, even though the fallen angels in that realm of creation think that they somehow or another have won a victory, have gotten the upper hand, that the tables are turning, or that the tide is shifting in their direction, this prophetic fulfillment, many believe, was part of the joy that Jesus couldn't wait to fulfill when He raised Himself from the dead. And guess what? The whole creation quaked. It quaked. He was seen in all of His glory. He was risen in all of the manifestations of who He was as God. And He takes His seat at the right hand of God. We've spoken about this before. It really is in the sense like geographically to the right. No, He's taking Himself a seat on the throne of majesty as the sovereign one. I, I, I struggle for an illustration here. I struggle for an illustration, you know. It's kind of one of the things where if you have someone who's a sculptor and, you know, people are wondering what he's sculpting and and what he's doing, he can't wait. 
He can't wait to uncover what he's been working on for a long time. So we're going to be like, wow, look at that. This guy, he's, I mean, he is really good. Look, the craftsmanship, the quality, so forth and so on. And so think for a moment how we were connecting to where and what the Old Testament saints were waiting on in this joy that Jesus couldn't wait to reveal as he led the captivity captive into their internal inheritance. And so by way of application, as we're considering what motivated Jesus' joy, dear friends, do you not see that the joy that has been set before you in the gospel, in the certainty of Him being your author or finisher of your faith, in John 10 that A.J. was talking about as the, the, the preserver of you running the race, that's going to be the very thing that anchors you. That's going to be the very thing that's going to give you the fortitude to suffer even if it requires to suffer like Jesus, which none of us have even come close to doing. Here in the Western world, we think we're suffering when the civil magistrate who are wicked pagans take down the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. Oh, we're being persecuted. You you haven't seen any persecution yet, right? Don't misunderstand what I just said. We need to be concerned as citizens of this country when that happens. But what if it requires a lot more? All right? And so that's why he moves now in this text to point you to what Jesus endured. You're going to be encouraged. I hope that he's the author and finisher. I hope you're encouraged in the joy that he compelled him to do that and the joy that you have before you to go forward. And notice what this creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, God in the flesh, our Lord, our Jesus did. He endured, the text says, the cross. He endured it. I want to say something here. Notice carefully the grammar. You say, oh, Pastor Doug, you know, the grammar, the grammar. Uh, friends, grammar, <laughs> and sometimes I will exasperate you with the meaning of Greek words and stuff in our sermon hands at handouts because the, the, the faithful theologians of the past are always reminding us that grammar and the meaning of the words in the Bible, they're the sheath that the sword of the Spirit rests in. Okay? So Christ endured the cross. Past tense, it's finished. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. He's not enduring the cross again. Okay, that's an important doctrine just to point out because there's many believe who are uh, saying that they're in the visible Christian church that every time they partake of the Lord's Supper that they're crucifying Christ all over again. But no, the past tense is represented here. Jesus did it once. This author has been repeatedly saying he endured the cross. In my studies, this caused me to go back and refresh myself of what the cross was. How many of you have looked into the way that the Romans used to crucify people and used to execute common criminals? It was by the cross. It was such a bloody, such a a horrific way to die that very rarely, I noticed there was a couple exceptions in Roman history where the elite Roman citizens would be executed by the cross, but very rarely. It was always reserved for common criminals, uh, if they were Roman citizens, or even those who were not citizens but were rebellious to the authority of Rome. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, he points this out, that Rome was fond of crucifying many of the Jewish zealots and those who would seek to rebel against Rome. 
archaeologists find in the bathhouses of Pompeii where you could find graffiti on the walls and it's using the word cross like in a slang way. You know, we would tell someone in our culture to go to, you know, where? Well, there they would say, go to the cross. That's their way of using it as a derogatory way and a cursing way. Early church father who lived uh, during the Roman Empire, St. Augustine, he would draw out in his writings how the cross was always specifically used to make the person that was undergoing it endure the most excruciating pain that could be humanly possible. At the cross, many of the historians write, it was as if the executioners were given free reign on what they would do to the person who would have to endure their wrath. Me and Brother Scott were talking before church as he studied out the execution method of the cross. And uh, it used to be believed that they would cross their legs. You've seen the depiction of Jesus. Uh, and, and there would be a stake in between two feet or a piece of wood on top of that. But actually, the only extant evidence archaeologically that we have in existence is shorter nails. And so they're saying there's no way, scholars would say, there's no way it could go through two feet plus a piece of wood. So most theorize they split the legs and they put one leg over here, one ankle up against the, the tree or the vertical pole, and they put one on this side so the body's sort of straddling it, and they put two nails in the feet or through the ankle. And then they host the, point, the, the person up. There's not any one way they were doing the crucifixion. But regardless of the debate of exactly how they were doing it, friends, it was excruciating pain. Traditionally, you used to believe that people that were cru- uh, crucified or hung up this way, as our Lord Jesus was, uh, his ankles, as if it were, being nailed to the cross. Um, they would die from asphyxiation where they couldn't catch their breath. So Jesus is there on the cross and as he's hanging with his arms above his head and all of his body weight's pushing down, he's trying to grasp for air. It used to be believed that they would break the legs of the people in order to help speed up the asphyxiation because if they had legs and uh, strength in their legs, they would kind of push their body up to be able to get air into their lungs. The common agreement among scholars today is it was definitely asphyxiation, but it was much more than that. There was so many other physiological implications to a body that is having to carry the beam to the place of the vertical pole that they're going to be hung on that would lead them to their ultimate death. We know the cross, the passion of Jesus, of what he endured in the mock trial in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. We know how that he was whipped and he was beaten and the blood running down his back, the flesh tear off the back of his backside. And he carries this heavy piece of wood to that cross where he's going to be hung. That's suffering beyond every figment of our imagination I've talked about before the uh, the film that came out by Mel Gibson where actually people that saw the film of what a Roman uh, crucifixion actually would look like 
in all of its gory detail, if you want to see a living picture of what I'm trying to articulate, what our author here is saying happened, you can watch that. It's not for young people. Uh, that's a parent's decision. I'm not going to tell you. But, but you watched that, friends. And there were people who would watch that who would have heart attacks that would faint in the movie theater because of the reality of the gruesome, brutal torture that Romans would do to these criminals. And here Jesus Christ... There was no guile found in his mouth, the apostolic writers tell us. No sin in his life. And the author, the inspired author in Romans 5 says that because of the sins we have committed while we were yet sinners, he died in our stead. He endured that. For every little lie, for everything we've ever taken, for every thought that we've a misstray thought that we have thought that goes against the moral law of God. Every single sin that we have committed, as we just saw as we jumped through Hebrews, He became the finisher and endured that cross for those sins. So that we could be free. So that we would not have to endure the eternal punishment that those sins require. This is the blessed gospel. This is the blessed reality of who Jesus Christ is and what He endured. He endured it all, beloved. Well, the cross in the Roman world was despicable, but the cross in the Gospels that He endured, it's a beautiful thing, and it is, throughout the Gospels, intimately connected with not only the necessity of blood covering the sins of those who have committed transgressions, but it's intimately connected with suffering. This thing comes out more and more. You could see the divine economy of God in the life of His church. It will, it will be predicated upon, it will be founded upon their master builder, Jesus Christ, who will give His own blood and to suffer. And then I'm going to ask them to be willing to suffer. Listen to Mark 8, 34-38. You know this text? This is, the, this is the banner. Friends, let's do this in our families. Let's do this in our marriages. Let's do this in our parenting. When there are these ups and downs, you can do this online. You can get online and you can have vinyl letters cut out. You can print it off a little piece of paper and frame it. Frame this text. Mark 8, 34-38. When Jesus called the people unto Him with His disciples, also He said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The immediate audience, remember what the cross is. Jesus, what? The cross? The cross? This derogatory word? This cross? This thing that's meant uh, to be a cursing upon people? Take up the cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's the same shall save his life. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, this is definitely this first century church feeling pressured to feel that way, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory of this Father, with the holy angels. Again, many of the apostolic writers, they're writing in such a way to where we have a very clear picture as Christians when we are getting ready to hand that baton to us. 
before Christian, understand here this morning, before your fingers grip onto that baton in this great relay race and you decide to begin running, the picture has never been presented in the New Testament that it will not require of you sacrifice or suffering. Paul puts it like this. You know the phrase, I am crucified. Again, this phraseology of crucifixion, the cross, suffering. I'm crucified with Christ. But even though I suffer with Him, even though I am crucified with Him, notice that it's the portal, it's the key, it's the way to actually live for Christ. So there's almost this New Testament picture, isn't it? That suffering produces life in the Christian's race. Where there is no suffering, where there is no affliction, there appears in the New Testament to be some sort of a stagnation. Now, Brother Rydell here, I've never been to his pond, but he, but he has a pond, and, and, and I'm sure that if he just let that pond set, just never any agitation in it, what's going to, be ha- what's going to happen, friends? Things are going to be, begin to grow. It's going to begin to smell. Sister Julie is going to be elbowing him and saying, hey, you need to take care of those gnats that are flying all around, right? And what's he got to get out to do? He's got to put that agitation in there. He's got to put those chemicals in there, however a microbiological way they work. And then, you know, I'm sure you got the $5,000 pond pump, right? You got to hire people to come outside. He's rolling his eyes. You know, but you get the picture here. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But it's not I that I live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself, i.e. suffered, for me. There was this constant pointing to the suffering of Jesus. Why? To fortify us and to make us resolved, brothers and sisters, in this race that every single one of us are running. A.J. John 10 drew out, not only did he endure this physical cross, but also the hostility of sinners. As if the cross itself wasn't punishment enough. Verse 3, look in your Bibles, informs us that Jesus, who suffered the cross, also suffered, as the authorized version says, the contradiction of sinners. Many modern translations phrase it this way, Uh, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. Some translations uh, translate it this way. It's a good translation. Consider him who endured such opposition, meaning such strife from sinners. And if you put it in the context and think about especially what J.J. was reading in John 10, he nailed it right on the head and we didn't even talk about this. He didn't even know where I was going to go in this aspect of contradicting the, the hostility of sinners. He, as you see in your sermon notes, got hostility from the very ones who he called to be the ones who were supposed to point others to him. Did you hear it this morning in John 10? Like a pack of wolves, they surrounded Jesus. He comes to his own people first. To tell them of the fulfillment of all that God had promised them. And what did they do? Those religious leaders. 
They sought to kill Him, not to point people to Him. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23, 27 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's bones. Yes, indeed, they looked like they were running the race. These religious leaders were dressed like they were in the race. But inside, they were full of dead bones. And they brought great opposition to His gospel. Great strife. We would be wrong, and this is the reason it's in the Bible, to think to ourselves, yeah, but He was God. I mean, you know, if I was God, I I could definitely withstand that. You're missing the point. Whenever the Bible is talking about Jesus' humiliation, His sufferings, you must read it as Jesus as a man. He, yes, was 100% God, but He was also 100% man. And so when He comes and you have these big, impressive religious readers surrounding you, challenging you, causing controversy and conflict, you're wrong to think that He just shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, well, I guess I'll just go to someone who likes me. No, friends, as a man, there would have been different levels of emotional excitement, ups and downs, fears, and so forth and so on. The hostility of these sinners he endured of not being the popular person, of speaking the truth in love. He endured all of that. But it wasn't just them. It was the entire Jewish populace, as you see in your notes. It's recorded for us in the Gospel, well, all the Gospels, but specifically Luke 23, where when the religious leaders actually had their fake mock trial, what did they do? They handed him over to the Jewish populace. And they all, like an angry crowd, led him to Pontius Pilate, the man in charge who had the power, uh, the civil magistrate power to do what he was going to do. And you remember what they cried? Crucify him! Crucify him! These who he came to share the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to, to announce it, to proclaim it. AJ was reading it this morning in John 10. He was at the feast. He comes purposefully to their Jewish ceremonies to say, I have arrived. All of the promises that God gives you, I'm here. Everything that He promised to our father Abraham, I am He. Abraham looked unto my day and he was glad. And the populace still foisted their anger, foisted their hostility upon Him. And He endured that. And sometimes we have our feelings hurt when someone, you know, doesn't want to receive something we say about the faith or someone doesn't uh, 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 warmly receive our witnessing of the gospel or in the workplace uh, you know you put a, a sticker I do this I'll put a, a, a track or a sticker in the portalettes many of you know I work in commercial construction and, and I see people write things around them, mocking God the, the populace right but I don't get my feelings hurt No, I look at the example of what they did to my Lord Jesus. It doesn't weaken my fortitude. It doesn't weaken my resolve. It encourages me to pray more for these people. But we can consider also, friends, that he received hostility, not from outside of his circles, but within his own family and his very own disciples. Initially, that is. John 7, 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. They were opposed to his claims of the gospel and who he was. 
Judas, as recorded in Matthew 26, Peter, as recorded in Luke 22, turned their backs on Christ. It is all of this, as you see in verse 3, that is intended to help us run the race. It's to fortify us, as you see in your sermon notes, against self-pity. Because we can, if we get a scratch, if we fall down in the race, friends, we are prone to fall in the ditch of self-pity. And, and, and it's, a, it's an awful thing to fall into. You can become consumed of it. Woe is me. No one's noticing. I got a scraped knee over here. So-and-so in church didn't acknowledge me. This, you know, so from the, We just begin to create this self-pity cloud over our race. And I don't know if any of you have tried to run in a thunderstorm, but it's not easy to do. Yeah, you're going to make some traction and you're going to move forward, but you're not going to make a lot of progress, are you? These things are meant, as you see in your sermon notes, to fortify us against self-preoccupation. Those sort of thoughts of self-pity and things of that nature, they begin to make us think that somehow or another we're the center of everything. That uh, you know, the church of Christ is all about me and what I want and what I like. Uh, that you know, uh, the, the, the certain uh, circles that you may be in. It's a fortification definitely, as you see in your notes, against doubting God's love for us. We do never doubt God's love, friends, when we are going through difficult or suffering times. And Jesus' coming to our last heading, example of suffering keeps all of our sufferings in perspective. And that's exactly why He places this strong emphasis in verse 3 and say, consider Him, consider Him. In the Greek, the word consider there means doesn't, don't just give a passing glance. Go back to the Gospels and read the Passion of Christ and read the crucifixion from time to time when you get discouraged. That's what it means to consider. To meditate on. To dwell upon. This gruesome suffering of our Lord Jesus. This mocking, this scourging, this rejection, this hostility that He faced. And it will fortify you. It keeps things in perspective. It's going to keep in perspective, as you see in your notes, the various types of sufferings and trials, which really can be categorized in four ways. There's the consequences of our own sins. Those are meant to humble us. Look at the life of King David. God couldn't turn His back on David's sin. No, He had to let David suffer through, as we're going to get into next week, the chastening of the Lord, to humble David. Oftentimes, our sufferings and trials are actually a test from God to teach us something, not for God to find out something. This is what we see in the life of Abraham and sacrificing his son Isaac. It was a test to demonstrate that God is faithful and how He provided the very last minute the ram. It's to fortify us against what is a true biblical doctrine, the disciplining rod of God, which is intended to be used by God as a loving Father. And this is what we're going to get into in the rest of this chapter in order to grow us, to mature us, to prune us. How many of us think of Jonah and how God had to discipline Jonah to make him a better man, right? Not to discourage him, not to break him, not to defeat him, but to make him a better man. 
But in the context of where we're at today, this is clearly the right interpretation of the category of suffering that He's wanting them to consider Jesus Christ for so that they will be fortified against it. And that is suffering for the name and the cause of Christ. Because that's what they were suffering for in the epistle of Hebrews. That's what they were suffering for. In closing, friends, I would urge us here, especially as the church in the West, as the church in the United States, going back to Zechariah 4, 6 this morning, our answer to the crises that we face as the church of Jesus Christ rests not in the arm and the power of princes. It does not rest in the power of legislation. It does not rest in the power of men, in schemes, in plans. It rests in the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to love these precious truths of the church suffering. Because what we need in this day and age above all other things, especially in the moment in the life of the church, is a robust and a refreshingly biblical theology of how to suffer well in the name of Jesus Christ and for His great cause. That's what we need. And that's what this text provides us. We have been coddled in the West We have been, praise be to God, I praise God for this. I'm not saying this in a critical way that I haven't been in front of this, but we've been insulated in the West from this type of suffering. And it may be required, not of my generation so much, but of you young men to have this sort of suffering that Christ endured. And I pray that these types of passages, these truths of our author of our finish of our faith, they give you as a young Christian the fortitude, they give you the resolve, to face these things like they did in chapter 11, like they did in the first century, like they did in the 16th century, that we're willing to what? Be willing to die and shed our blood for the name and the cause of Christ. Of Christ. Like all of those of God who have went before us, friends, we too may be required to someday taste the bitter afflictions that really when I talked to Pastor Sukumar, when he was here visiting with us, showing us how outside of the door of their church, or not his, but the, the one there in Bandar Lepesh, how outside of that church, the first Christian church in that city, there stands a 75-foot statue, a golden statue of a, uh, of a false god with seven heads. Right? We only have Pastor Sukumar here telling us about it. Right? But we may be required someday to be under that sort of persecution. Right? And it will be in those seasons, beloved, that we will need to carefully apply the balm of Christ's promises and his faithfulness as the author and finisher to our souls as we seek to what? Suffer through it, fight through it make our way and navigate by His blessed Spirit through it. And He is faithful to do that and to finish that which He has begun. Amen?
one of the most precious Bible verses any of us could ever memorize, especially as new converts, Philippians 1.6. That work which He has started, He is perfect and He is able to perfect it unto the end. That Bible verse was given to me as a young Christian when I was first handed the baton and was ready to throw in the towel. I was wanting to quit. I was wanting to give up. And Pastor Morton, a faithful man who had been running the race a while, he took me to that verse and unpacked it for me and showed me some of these blessed truths that we're marinating in right now and we will be for the couple of weeks of suffering well as God's people. May the Lord bless these things to our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You and as we have the cross of Jesus and His great humiliation, Lord, in the front of our minds at the moment. Oh, Father, we adore You. We thank You. We give You all honor. We give You all glory, oh God, for Your divine scheme of salvation. We thank You, Father, that uh, the Bible, it presents to us, Lord, a unified gospel a narrative, a thread of this eternal love that is displayed all throughout its pages, pointing us uh, to look to the great object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Jesus, the begotten Son of the Father, oh, for being willing to condescend down from Your glory and become a man and suffer and to die for us as filthy, undeserving sinners. We praise You. We thank You, O Christ. We worship You. And we thank You, God the Spirit. We thank You that You inspired men such as we're reading from today to write these precious experiential truths that that we no doubt face and experience as God's people in every age that the church exists. And we thank You, O Spirit, that You will use these texts to help us, no matter what we are in, no matter what season of life we're in, Lord, to hang on, to not drop the baton. But Lord, with, with all of the sanctified grit and sanctified ability You grant to us, we will persevere. We will, Lord, by Your power, uh, uh, get serious about throwing off those things in our lives that are weighing us down from running this race. Oh, blessed Spirit, You know the inter recesses of our hearts and we implore You and we ask You, do that which we cannot do. Grow us, mature us, help us, oh, sanctify us. Show us as we're approaching the table here a fresh and a renewed vision of the cross of the perfect Lamb of God dying for us. Renew within our hearts the great zeal and love that You placed there when You found us as blinded-hearted sinners. Our blessed triune God, we look now to You and we ask You to take the considerations and Your Word that we have looked at together and apply it to our lives. We love You only as we learn today because You first loved us. We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.